Hello, hello, beautiful people. Thank you for being here. I am Ani, and I'm the host of We the Changemakers, the podcast about how each of us can make a small and sometimes an enormous difference in the world. Today is about one of those changemakers making an enormous difference in the world, John P. Milton. This is part two of my interview with him. Part one was all about his environmental work and is really worth checking out. Part two today is about spirituality and the need for it spirituality to create the foundation for environmental action to really take place and take hold in the long term. So we go into, first of all, this town that he lives in, Crestone, Colorado, where I met him, which is the spiritual haven for all of these different traditions and practices, which really many of them come down to a communion with nature, which is reached through vision quests. He talks about his own experience with vision quests starting at age seven, (laughs) which is amazing. And then how this has led him to start the way of nature, which is a way for him to encourage and everybody, anybody to get into nature, to communion with nature and to find that spirituality that is around us all the time, that is ever present. And we only need to open our eyes to it's a really special episode, um, for me as well, just because this is a reflection of my own spiritual path and the things that I'm learning and excited about at the moment. So I'm particularly excited to share this with you and I hope you enjoy and check out more of his work. He's an amazing human being and I know that uh, anyone who comes in contact with him will just fall in love with him. So enjoy the episode and uh, we'll speak soon. So thank you, John, for being willing to talk to me some more. Um, You have such an interesting and varied life that there's so many things we can talk about. So I I maybe want to talk about this town that we're in, Crestone, which is Mm. a really fascinating, fascinating, um, I mean, village, really, with a long history. And you you came here in the 80s, and you've seen it change a lot since then and been kind of an instrumental part in the change. So maybe you can talk a little bit about why Crestone. Yeah, I think I got here in, must have been about 78 or 9. And um, I might have mentioned that um, <clears throat> I had been wanting to shift from my predominantly environmental work to, uh, or I should say predominantly ecological work, to uh, uh, the nature connection focus. Because I saw that all the legislation that came out of doing the environmental work. I didn't show you the books, but I, I've got a whole wall up there of just the publications. Wow. I got very involved in helping get the uh, environmental policy act going, uh, providing the database for the first conference on the environment in Stockholm mm-hmm. in 72, and all kinds of stuff. I wrote a little book called Ecological Principles for Economic Development. Mm. And um, so, and a lot of political work, especially with things like the Environmental Policy Act, getting that, helping get that going. And then the Friends of the Earth and the lobbying side. But I saw that without a spiritual foundation and a cultural foundation, 
all this good work go down the tubes. It would just take a few ignorant people. I mean, Donald Trump's behavior is a perfect example of what I knew even back in the early 70s, that uh, if somebody like him appeared on the scene, or Ronald Reagan, it was oh, not as bad, but he was pretty bad for the, for the movement. He destroyed the entire, all the initiatives that were built up in the 70s that would have prevented most of the climate change catastrophes that we're now having to deal with. Wow. He stopped all that. Wow. He I was, didn't realize that that yeah, was, he was, he was part of his legacy. Public enemy, or I should say global biosphere enemy number one. No question about it. In terms of a major known politician. And then, of course, the interests. And that was because him. of the economic interests that were intertwined. Yeah, and he became a spokesman for the same people that Trump is putting into power now. Trump talks one language, and then he goes and puts in every oil and uh, gas and coal executive he can find or lobbyist. I mean, it's the most unimaginative, destructive uh, selection of appointees to office. And then, of course, he's left hundreds of vacancies on top of it, many of them in key agencies like EPA. Completely abandoning that agency, yeah, really. so it's just, he's just destroying it mm-hmm. using uh, classical bureaucratic techniques of doing these. He, he may be a dummy, but the team behind him is not. I am in full agreement. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> the... Um, so for that reason, I knew that possibility existed, and so we had to have a much stronger uh, foundation spiritually and culturally. So then I began taking my own experience of doing vision quests from a very young age. I think I mentioned I started at age seven, and uh, I've been doing it ever since. I, I do it every year. I just did one this year. I showed you the picture of it. Down in Mexico. A little video. In a beautiful, in a beautiful setting. Yeah, yeah, great location. And uh, and I really believe in it. I mean, it's changed my life totally. And I have yet to meet a person that is not. I take that back. There was one person whose life was not changed. Interesting. But what I do you think? Put out thousands of people. Yeah. And everyone, you should see the stuff I get back. I mean, it's just incredible. The testimonials. And was so spirituality was a strong part of your life from a very young age, but it it you just didn't um, see the need to mix it up in your ecological work until later on. Is that or how did you come to the decision that you needed to? Uh, well, when I was step that getting up? involved in building out, helping build out the environmental movement and uh, getting the some of the early legislation going. Um, the um, I think I began to see that a lot of my friends were burning out as environmentalists. So I used to take, I, I thought to myself, well, what they really need is just to get plugged back in to the source of their inspiration. So I started taking out environmental leaders and people who were working within the movement as it was beginning to build so they get plugged in and just get recharged. And they go back in, re-inspired and reinvigorated. Right. So a lot of the early work was done like that, kind of in that way. 
Later on, I, I realized it could be a tool for the whole culture. And I looked at uh, what had happened with the Native Americans. Has it ever struck you that it's pretty amazing that virtually every tribal nation in the Americas has the people that are part of that, if they have any remnant of their original culture. It's profoundly ecological in its orientation. Absolutely. There's always this concept of Mother Earth, of Pachamama, of, yeah. you know, this, this, and there's always rituals and rites and ceremonies right. that give back to the earth so before it's a you. It's always a, yeah. Before there's any sort of agricultural. There's always uh, gratitude, there's, there's always yeah. exchange, there's, there's giving and taking like everything else in nature. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and nature itself is a profoundly sacred thing, along with Great Spirit. And, Mother Earth, and even Great Spirit, it's it's a beautiful concept because it's not, it's not in a male or female context. It's it's in a context that's universal. It enfolds both, both male and female. Aspects. Nor is it in a religious context. It's not really, yeah, not really religious. It's more. It's what is the current yeah. of life and being that flows through everything. And I feel like everyone who is open to some kind of spirituality can relate to the concept mm-hmm. of great spirit. Mm-hmm. And it means maybe something a bit different to everyone, but there's this, there's this understanding. It's a very universal term in many, many ways. Uh, so. <clears throat> so you arrived in Crestone in the late seventies. <laughs> Did so, you know it was a, 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 or going to be a spiritual? I'd heard some stories that it was a very unusual place. Mm-hmm. That's about all I'd heard. Mind you, when I arrived here, there were 50, roughly 50 people in the old town and the Baca combined. And today, about 2,000, maybe? God, I hope it's not that big. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, it, it certainly attracts a lot of people. So even if not that many people live here, there's definitely a lot of people who come through here for yeah. its spiritual kind of um, yeah, I think, foundations. I think it might be fair to say, especially in the warm months, we might get up to a couple thousand. Mm. I think the, the core population is probably around 1,200. And something really interesting happened here in the 70s, which was uh, Hannah and her husband, um, Strong. Mm-hmm. What was his name? Maurice Strong. Maurice. Hannah and Maurice Strong moved here and saw that there were these plans to develop it into some sort of big retirement community. And somehow they were able to... Um, I wish Hannah were here I, so she could hear the way, way how I'm telling the story. <laughs> I'm probably butchering it. She would go, ah! I'm butchering it. I'm no, butchering no, no. it. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm teasing you. <laughs> well, I would. But I, I should, I, in, yeah. uh, in Hannah's defense, I should say they had no concept of a, of a tourist development at all. Their only interest was in. They did have a strong interest in enlightenment and traditions that supported uh, liberation. And they had a powerful interest in the environment because Maurice, her husband, was the chairman of the first conference on the environment held by the United Nations mm-hmm. in Stockholm in 1972. Mm-hmm. And all that work that I did... Uh, Led to that. I did 200 case studies of catastrophes around the world. That provided part of the database that made that conference into being. Wow. It was used at the conference to prove that it was, we had a big issue on our hands. So um, 
that's how I got to know him, and then later I got to know her. But well, what I was, what I, what I meant to say is that they saw that it was going, it was, they were trying. Well, that other people were trying to develop this land that's for true. improper use. Yeah, so the, like was, having kind of this retirement yeah, community yeah. with too many people like and the, and overuse of the land, and that's why they. They somehow came in and were able to change that entirely. Yeah, and he instead... actually inherited a company because um, uh, he was doing, he was on the, the boards of a number of companies and things like that and was always trying to shift them in an environmental direction. So one of the company, companies that he ended up in, as part of <clears throat> in that way because uh, he had good, great organizational skills was uh, a company that held this weird ranch way up in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains in southern Colorado. And it was one of the old Baca land grants, one of the old, part of the original land granting system from Spain. And uh, so they ended up with this gigantic holding. I, I can't remember how many hundred thousand acres it was, but it was big. <coughs> then stretched from uh, let's see, from here to Alamosa almost. Very large. Certainly down in the sand dunes. National Park now. Big ranch. Amazing. Yeah. And they decided to use that for spiritual purposes to give a refuge, basically, they, to... There were a lot of different ideas about what to do with the main ranch. Some of them controversial ideas. But uh, early on, they decided to take uh, and I was part of the process by that time because I was working with them as part of this foundation called Manitou. So we were lucky enough that uh, with more, especially with the initiative of Maurice and Hannah, they were able to peel off 20,000 acres more or less, as I recall, uh, that could be made available as gifts to different spiritual communities from around the planet that had both in a capacity to help bring enlightenment more widely, and uh, which had the capacity to show the way how a spiritual tradition could be ecologically based. So that was part of the founding principles behind the original Manitou Foundation. And the Manitou became the vehicle for the gifting of all these properties, that the land that was put into the Manitou Foundation land that's been right. given now to to Buddhist uh, traditions yeah, there's, and there's Hindu traditions. And probably in excess of 40 different groups. Some, among, The majority of them have received the gifts of land from the foundation, but a number now, because there's so many here, have been coming in and picking up some land and doing it that way, mm -hmm. too. So it's been a combination. We've been working very hard to try to provide support for the Native American people, especially the grandmothers. And there's a very wonderful indigenous grandmothers movement. I think where you're staying, that woman there is part of that. And so we've been trying to support them. So there's a place here where the grand grandmothers and the grandfathers can come, especially the elders, have a place where they can restore themselves, recover, and help to preserve the oral traditions of, of, of these great peoples. And it's so important because this is also sacred Native American land that yeah, we're on. Yeah, this was originally uh, an area where many nations came for vision quests, for deep attunement to themselves and to the earth. 
and spirit. So it was. It makes sense for them to be pretty integrally involved here in some way. The Pueblo peoples, especially. I mean, all the pueblos we have Taos Pueblo just to the south, and then a whole bunch of pueblos going on down into New Mexico, and on the land I've been preserving here, the sacred land sanctuary. We have one, uh, I think, one of the more northerly of the Kivas that was probably somehow linked into the Pueblo system at one time. Can you explain what that is? The Kiva is a, a place you go in a sacred way. Uh, most of them, you go down into the earth through an entrance hole in the top. And then Where you, know, you would have a vision quest. And you would go through a ceremonial process. Okay. Uh, vision quest is can be done in a number of ways. Yeah. We can talk about that. Sure, let's talk about too. it. Um, I think I was mentioning the beginning that the vision quest was uh, an integral part of the Native American way. And I was saying that you may wonder why it is that the Native American cultures are so profoundly ecological in their perspective. Maybe we start out with that. The reason is one of the powerful reasons they are like that is because of the vision quest and the wilderness soul going into nature in a sacred way in solitude with the guidance of, of very wise elders grandmothers and grandfathers and people and shamans that have a, have a deep attunement and have received a lot of wisdom about how to prepare people to take that dive so they receive those gifts and transmissions and then they take the dive into nature and, and the solitude. And often when they come out, they're received back into their cultures as an adult or the beginning of the adult phase of their life. And maybe they may have a new name which may or may not be public. And uh, the experience that happens in the solitude is basically a rebirth. They're reborn into the world of spirit and out of the body of Mother Earth. From her womb. First, the Earth Mother, the, the, the human mother, and then Mother Earth herself mm. directly, and uh, in spirit. And is that the experience that you had yes. in, when you were seven years old and you yes. went on your first vision quest? Right. So, how can talk us through how you ended up deciding to go on a vision quest at that early age? I'm sure most seven year olds are not thinking about that kind of thing. Did you even have the language for it? And uh, no, I mean, my parents thought it was a little weird. Wow. Now they have in, I should mention that my grandfather, we called him the chief. My grandmother had a name called Maka, which in some cultures is an old indigenous term for Mother Earth in a sacred way. So there was something going on in my family that was kind of unusual as far as Native American stuff. We planted organic, we grew in organic, farm. We used a dig step to plant the seeds and we so the dig stick would go into the earth to provide the place where the, the corn and the bean and the squash could be planted. And then we were raised with aunts, uncles, grandparents, moms and dads and kids all grew up, cousins and so on, all together as a unit. Wow. And we worked the farm together. And where was this? Yeah, up in New Hampshire, the White Mountains. Mm. Fantastic. Still feel very connected to that place. Mm. 
I'm not part of it legally anymore. I have too many obligations out here. But um, in Colorado and <clears throat> Arizona. But the uh, I still feel that my, my body and my cells are very much deeply, still deeply connected. Whenever I get a chance to go back for a brief visit, I, I feel it immediately. Home. Yeah. And I think most Native people have that same thing. Mm. Same experience, part of their body. They're part of the, the body of that land. The land is part of their body. They're one and the same. So, were you then? You were living in a small town or in the countryside, or in a, in this this farm up in the, in the mountains, okay. in a fairly remote location. And uh, so, when I did my first uh, vision quest, uh, I basically told my parents when I was uh, around five that I wanted to do this, and they said. I'll send them, why don't you wait a little while and then we'll put you out so you're going to be alone in nature. And I, so I remember my sixth year came along and I said, well, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, maybe uh, maybe one more year. And so the seventh year rolled around and they said, okay, we'll help get you out there. Those are good parents. Yeah. And so, and how long were you out by yourself in nature? Oh, it was, it was short, you know, I think it's like five nights. Five, five nights. nights as a seven-year-old is an extremely long time. I've been reading stories about, about, you know, children who are undergoing the shamanic process and they go out for a night or two, or two nights is actually you considered. Barely gets, you barely open the door. Right, and, but... But you know they're they're children, <laughs> so so five nights and so four or five I can't remember precisely. They they packed you up with uh, food and yeah they my, my mom especially things. was very supportive and she supported me to the max in going to these most outrageous wilderness places. She dropped me off with a backpack, seen me stride off into the wilderness alone. And and then we'd arrange to meet maybe a week or two later at some point, maybe on the other side of the mountain range. And I, she knew I'd be up there somewhere doing a vision quest. And uh, this went on year after year, often two or three times a year. Wow. And uh, and she always helped me prepare the food, work, come up with a menu that would last over that period of time, and with uh, making sure the equipment was all what it needed to be and all the the Y's were the I's were dotted and the Y's were the X's were crossed <laughs> and would you care to share what happened on that first one because I imagine it must have been very transformative um, the one thing I remember about it was especially that the birds and the animals all came over to me and acted in a very familiar way very lovingly and it was as if my relationship with all of nature uh, was consecrated mm. I think in, in the Catholic Church don't they have a they have a ceremony they call the uh, first communion yes communion yeah, yeah. Mm. so it was like a communion from nature directly from nature and spirit wow. and the behavior of the animals just kind of cemented it uh, they were protecting you yeah. as well, giving yeah. you that yeah. support you needed, yeah. letting so, you know uh, you weren't alone. 
an ongoing relationship which went deeper and deeper and deeper and I realized here was my family it was just my aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents and parents but it was these 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 friends who you can talk to but just yeah. in different ways yeah. yeah they have very clear languages and then later on in life, you ended up spending about 22 years in solitude, yeah, I guess, I, off and on, right? When I first got out here to Crestone, mm. uh, one of the first things I did was to uh, engage in 22 years of deep retreat. And it was, it was there were breaks in that, of course, and I, I usually took the winter off because my little cabin, you'll see when we walk in there, we, I think I figured out a way to get you in there. Uh, I was going to give you a pair of my boots. And have you got a big pair of socks? Big socks? Or a double pair of those I can get an, socks? I can, <laughs> I can get some more socks and <laughs> pile them on. Because I've got some nice cowboy boots that would be perfect. Um, but anyway, you'll see that little cabin. It's very cold in the winter. Um, <clears throat> so I would usually go down to Arizona for the winter. And later on, also to Mexico. So it probably averaged six months out of the year that I was in in retreat. And then at the beginning and the end of the retreats, if I offered a some kind of training, um, I'd usually do it during the beginning or the end of my, my retreat, personal retreat time. And you had chosen ahead of time to do twenty two years. It just kind of happened. Okay. Yeah. What was so what was one of the more? <laughs> what was one of the more uh, difficult challenges that you remember from that time of solitude? Uh, I remember one time I got uh, Lyme, not Lyme, but uh, what's the disease that's passed along from uh, mice? I don't. I don't know. There's a kind of uh, disease that's the name of it's escaping me. But it's um, kind of like a virus. It's not, I don't think it's contagious or it comes and then if you live through it, that's it. Uh, but it does kill quite a few people. I think close to half the people get it. And um, it's borne by mice and rats, especially uh, uh, <clears throat> deer mice. And so you caught that? And I still remember uh, passing out and feeling I was dropping into a black hole. And then having to, and when you have that, you throw up a lot and you're dehydrated. It's very difficult, very challenging that way. So I'd have to crawl down to the stream to get water because my cabin had no electricity, no telephone, no uh, plumbing. And if you had an emergency, could you drive into town? Uh... Okay, I had a car for part of that time, but uh, I usually parked up close to the the entrance road where you saw. And so, and for you, that was never an option that crossed your mind was to just leave solitude. Uh, well, I was in a period where I didn't, I, I, like many people these days, I didn't have much cash, much money because I was doing that deep retreat period. And I knew I probably couldn't afford any medical help. 
and I trusted that nature would be the ultimate healer for me. And, and, and it was. And it was. I was like, I don't recommend people not get good medical attention, especially from some of the traditional uh, avenues that are now available. Uh, the TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, is awesome. Mm, because of its integrated yeah. system approach. Yeah. So I highly recommend people have that as a foundational thing. I didn't have, I had Tai Chi and Taoist practices at that time, which is probably one of the reasons I was able to get through that one bout of that uh, that uh, uh, sickness. But uh, uh, with that, that opened uh, enough life force. Wow. So and and what was one of the more difficult? psychological or emotional challenges that you faced during that period? Well, uh, of course, relationships with with uh, uh, friends and with uh, having a girlfriend, things like that, is highly problematical under those circumstances. So you had a, you had a romantic relationship at the time <laughs> when you were in solitude? Uh, most of that time, no. Okay. Because... Uh, Crestone is not like it is now. It's a very small town. Imagine 50 people, most of them uh, a fair bit older than I was. And uh, and then a lot of the original, the mining community and the, the ranching community that were here. And then you had uh, the Baptists here. And the Baptists, uh, when I, little, there's a little post office. Uh, you know where the little... Uh, Kitchen is the the food is good restaurant. I think so. Yeah. They have a sign up saying our food is great yes. or something. Yes. Uh, that used to be the post office. Okay. In the building. <laughs> and when I first so it's one it's a space larger than this this little room here. And when I first went in, they saw that um, they'd heard that I was practicing meditation from. Uh, strange places like India and China mm. and they saw so I was doing weird movements that uh, of course that was Tai Chi mm -hmm. but it was weird at the time nobody very knew very weird stuff mm -hmm. and I had a Jewish friend who I invited to town and so when I was greeted at the post office a number of the the residents at the time the sign of the cross because I was a pagan obviously wow so they sort of ostracized you yeah so anybody who's meditating has a Jewish friend and who has um, um, <clears throat> uh, involved in uh, practices from China and India stuff like that and much less doing strange movements it look like you're on drugs or something. I, so I come from a very, um, you know, Christian family, and my my you know my parents are missionaries. Actually, my grandparents are also missionaries. My mm. aunt and uncle are missionaries, and um, in a recent conversation with my parents, we were lamenting the fact that Christianity today, in the form that it's taken, has lost its spiritual element has lost its spiritual side and my parents have been really going back to like Celtic Christianity and oh, cool. to look into that the nature um, Celtic aspect. was 
Christianity mm-hmm. was amazing because, mm-hmm. especially from Ireland, because they a lot of it integrated with the earth wisdom of the Irish, which is there already. So you're Irish. Uh, actually, yeah, third Irish, yeah. And my parents have been spending time in, in Ireland going to retreats. <laughs> nice. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> We're shaking hands. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and that's been such a really cool uh, bonding, I feel, with my, with my parents is as I have been progressing on my spiritual mm-hmm. path, um, and we're able to, you know, share just our common experiences with spirituality, even if, you know, mine aren't limited to Christianity. So and, there's an um, openness. There yeah. is absolutely an openness. And what's, what's, I think, really beautiful is how aware my parents are and of the necessity of that, like, spiritual side. And, you know, they, they really want to, to find that, re, like, rebalance the scales, actually, yeah. of religion and spirituality. Because religion without spirituality, so Baptists without yeah. the understanding of, yeah. of the meditation or of these other practices that are beneficial to you as, and to connect you with nature. Yeah, I mean, with the, all like the Christ was a, was a master of many of these things. Absolutely. And there's, there are so many teachers, even if you are, you know, even if you feel that this truth is your one truth, there are many teachers that can inform that truth. And, um, and I feel like somehow we have split off the, you know, the religion into just a purely intellectual, you know, blind faith thing and rather than an experiential spirituality. Do you have any feeling of why that is or... Uh, well, I I agree with everything you're saying, and I've certainly observed that. I have a couple of fr- uh, students. One is a wonderful man who is an Episcopalian priest, or Episcopal priest, and he uh, comes here. He's done 28 days all here with me. And, uh, and we've done a number of programs now where we've brought Christianity, kind of an ecological Christianity, into the training process. And it's been a great thing to do that with him as a kind of mutual exploration and uh, so I can see that, and he's he's done a great job in, in opening me a little bit more to uh, the that potential side of, of Christianity which I didn't know about before because where I grew up it wasn't, we didn't have a particular religious background as a family we weren't my dad was Catholic my mom was Protestant and the church uh, told him he was going to go to hell because he had married my mother wow it's not a very good beginning for your 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 relationship to organized religion I remember the, a bunch of nuns after my parents were very open they said well son go ahead and explore different things see what fit, seems like a good fit for you so I went to a a little Sunday school. It's one of the first things I did. And um, <clears throat> after the first class, the nuns, uh, my family is pretty well known in that state because my grandfather was a, a U.S. senator. And they grabbed me, took me off into a corner, and they said, and they, I think there were four or five nuns, and they said, your father is going to go to hell because he married your mother. Can you imagine a four or five year old kid doing that? And uh, so I didn't start out with a very good feeling about 
organized religion. And when I came out of there, I told my parents what had happened. And I said, I never want to go back in that building again. I didn't. <laughs> and ironically, I feel like you were closer to enlightenment at that age of five <laughs> than those nuns were <laughs> after a lifetime of study. Yeah, it's crazy. It is. It is crazy. It's. It, I mean, it's what happens when you lose touch with that source, yeah. right? Yes. And you and you become dogmatic and rule based rather than um, just. But in a way, it was know. very freeing. I mean, then mm. a couple of years later, I had my first vision quest, and then I was given a baptism into the into a real communion mm. with with life and spirit. One question I have that I've been thinking about a lot lately is whether the spiritual path is a lonely one. Mm. Do you feel that it's a lon- that it can be a lonely one? Well, it sometimes is. It doesn't have to be. One of the things I like about the Taoist tradition is that they they put a lot of emphasis on how do you work with with uh, relationship energy, how do you work with sexual energy, how do you work with uh, all the passions in a way that allows that life force to transmute into a very pure form. So a lot of their practice is um, embraces relationship. It doesn't say this is bad or this is wrong or you can't go this way or anything like that. And in what my experience with the West, it, there is, I mean, we, in a way we, we, uh, we, in a way, we've we've come a long way in in, in not branding that as bad, but we're still a long way from embracing that as a core part of the process. And some embracing of, what specifically? Uh, well, in the case of relationships, uh, sexuality is almost always uh, no. You don't go there. You don't talk about that. If you, uh, when I was growing up, we were told that. The only real reason for having a relation or a love life was to have a kid. Which completely denies just the energy that yeah. exists in sexuality. I mean, beyond yeah. sex, it's just there it's is just like denying a... the basic joy of the life force itself mm-hmm. and the, the natural joy of, of, of the polarity exchange. And then uh, the fact that it can produce a young one is great. I mean, that's kind of it's a miracle. Ultimate uh, <laughs> fruition of that. Yeah. But in many of the traditions, the tantric traditions and the Taoist traditions, they have a way of embracing that, where it's part of the expression of the joy of the life force, and it's seen as a seamless part of the totality of of spiritual life, not something that is compartmentalized off to some other realm that you. You might go to, but you're not being a spiritual person then. I think it, it comes back to kind of this um, this splitting of uh, in in religion, I guess at the time of enlightenment maybe, where it became much more about the mind and the yeah, head. Yeah, it's the disembodiment thing. The disembodiment thing, and then yeah. de- denying of the flesh and the body. Right. Yeah, and so this fear of what, I mean, it's, it's a funny, it's a fear really in the mm-hmm. end of what your body is and wants and... I think in a way it's, it may be natural because people are afraid that they will lose the connection to spirit. Maybe that's the origin of it, by getting too attached. 
and then losing that connection to, to spirit. Fear of addiction. Or... And fear of addiction to whatever. And, uh, and it, the, it's a valid fear because you can become deeply attached and lose. The, that's why so many traditions have um, a celibate option. Or in some cases, a celibate none option. Yeah. Take a lot of the priests, you've got to be celibate. Well, if I, you know, honestly, after doing my 10 days in silence, I realized that to protect my energy right now in this phase that I'm in, I needed to take, um, to basically take vows for to be vegan and alcohol free and celibate for the winter period. Take so a break. Take, yeah, and just kind of understand my own energy and be able to. That's very good. Yeah, and it was it was this weird message that came to me where I was like, really? <laughs> Do I have to? Yeah. <laughs> like, no, but, I think that's also part of the natural flow. Yeah, and, and it just. When it's, it's good to be yeah. active and, and involved with all of that, and there's time for solitude, quiet, moving inward out all experiencing back into source and taking a break from that outward expression and learning that solitude isn't necessary necessarily lonely that you yeah. have everything you need inside of you you have all those answers you have all the comfort you have all the love you have all the I mean the pleasures that are already kind of there with you yep that's true and uh in the, uh, I think in 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 many ways the uh, we used to call the the period of solitude in the sacred passage uh, the uh, solitude 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 and then I noticed everybody coming out of the passage solitude they didn't talk about being uh, lonely or in uh, uh, deprivation. What they talked about was the vibrancy, the joy, and the incredibly powerful experiences of connection with the rest of life, and and making an authentic connection with the inner spirit. And uh, and you can see immense joy just radiating from them. So I changed the name to the all alone time. All one. And added an extra. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's ironic because I think when you do go through that process, um, you realize the connections and you realize you're not alone. But it's the fear of being alone that keeps people from going through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really what's holding them back. That's right. Whereas, we're, you know, it's easy to be alone in a crowded room. It's easy to feel alone. Some of the most alone experiences I've ever had been when I've gone to a party where everybody's drinking a lot of beer or booze and I just don't want to get into that and I feel like I'm completely uh, in a solitary state because I'm I'm not on the same journey there that is are taking. perfect segue to something I wanted to ask you with which is how when you're on a spiritual path do you deal with you know, other people being in totally different energies. Like, how are you, how do you continue interacting with them and accepting them, but in their own state and keeping your own space? You know, what, how do you approach that? Or do you try to avoid that as much as possible? I'm just curious because that's something I've been thinking about a lot. Like, going forward, 
do I seek out a community that is very like-minded or do I just focus more on holding my own? Well, <clears throat> one of the things that um, I have benefited a lot from is learning push, push hands. We're now, it's sometimes called these days sensing hands. And you learn how to embody yourself in such a way that you can take any situation that arises and uh, instead of tensing up against it and freezing and becoming blocked, you become open, spacious, <laughs> <laughs> and you can easily get out of the way. <laughs> and you use thumb wrestling for all situations. Yeah, it's like uh, thumb wrestling with your whole body. Thumb wrestling with your whole body. <laughs> because I, it's, I, it's hard to avoid those situations sometimes. Yeah, so real mastery is, again, one of the reasons we start with presence and relaxation is that those two are the in the yang of the cultivation process. Without mastery of those two, you don't make any progress. If you just cut yourself off from interaction with the outside world, then of course when you do have to encounter it, you may have achieved a very high level of, of joy and peace. But as soon as you get out into the outer world, suddenly you lose it within a matter of sometimes seconds. I can tell you, <laughs> I thought I did a lot of work on myself until I went to Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs> and I realized that all of my, you know, my dark yeah. parts of myself were, were emerging yeah. and I realized, oh, I have more work to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So a lot of uh, what I do is I train people in a process I call tempering. When they come out of their solo, there are five parts to our process. And actually, these five parts have been codified uh, by some folks from, uh, especially from MIT, very into something called Theory U. And called what? Theory U. Theory U. And it basically is a three-step process. One of my students is a guy named Brian Arthur, and he codified this into the beginnings of a, what became a Theory U, a theory which then has been picked up by some very uh, uh, powerful teachers within the East Coast, MIT, Harvard, Yale-type community. And uh, it's a, the three-step process is first, you do some thinking, exploration, training, uh, seek out good teachers, seek out getting information you need to prepare yourself for a deep dive into whatever you're investigating. Then you take a deep dive into, ideally, into solitude and um, inner space and follow all the exploration, all the practice that you've been doing. You follow that back deep into the inner cave, the inner deepest level of your being. And then at that level, what we generally Recommend at that point, you, you if you've mastered presence and relaxation to some degree, they begin to provide the open space for something fresh and new to arise. So it becomes an opportunity for the fresh, the new, and the truly creative to show up because you're given that the space. And so that's the third phase is the openness. That's, so the, fir the first phase is the preparation. Mm -hmm. Second phase is dropping into the, into the base of the you. 
Then the third phase is when you come up out of that with this creative insight and then you, there's a lot to be done to integrate that into the outer world. And that's a, actually an, kind of an extension of the creativity often. And often the most creative creativity arises after you've touched into the absolute base of pure, pure being, pure consciousness, pure, pure essence, pure source. Do you see people getting stuck at different levels sometimes? Mm -hmm. Yep. So this, when you do a way of nature training, you always go through those three phases. But we've actually, I've discovered that actually there are five phases. The first phase is when, like when we were talking about the sacred passage earlier, and you said, hmm, well, I guess I need to do something like that. So that... What happens there is your intent, you fire up your intent, something's ignited. And when that intent is there, hmm, I'm gonna do this. That starts something in motion that then triggers a whole chain of events. It brings up, for, for example, both the things that are supportive that kind of synchronistically support you going in with that. I'm sure you've noticed that kind of thing happening. Absolutely. But also, because you've made an intent around something profound that goes underneath all the shadows and deeper than the shadows, all the shadows that stand in the way of your doing that then come to the surface. And all those things show up as why you can't do it. Right. The ego wants to protect itself. Yeah. And that's part of the process. So that's actually stage one. Then stage two is where you engage in the training, the exploration, the investigation, the how do I ready myself in the best possible way for this dive into, into, into my true nature. And in the course of the leaves that you looked at, you also are taking a dive into the uh, kind of three core questions. Uh, who am I? Why am I here? Am I in alignment with my true purpose for this lifetime? Very basic questions. Mm. All of that cannot be realized unless you've touched into the source. So then, if you are with a skillful teacher, they will help you take that deep dive, prepare you for that deep dive with a toolkit that supports a more rapid, and effective opening of the experience of source. Then you go into the, you go into that experience of the all one time. And when you come out of that, almost everyone has some amazingly profound insights that begin to emerge. That can continue happening for days, weeks, months, sometimes even years afterwards. But there's also usually a very fresh uh, part that comes out right away. Mm -hmm. And then the challenge is the, so that's the third phase, <clears throat> the deep dive into the all one time. But the fourth phase is where you begin to come out and you begin to learn how to integrate that back into your everyday life. So when we do a sacred passage now, or a nature quest, which is a shorter version of that, or a renew program, which is where you can the entire thing into one day or maybe a weekend. 
uh, makes it very accessible. The fourth phase is set up so that you begin to learn how to integrate all of this back into your normal life and, and how the toolkit in a way can support you in a deepening integration. And I, at that stage, I introduced a, a practice called tempering, which is where you go deep into the essence of yourself. You might you begin to, you might go to a restaurant or a, hanging out with some friends that have some problems. You feel their blockages because you're so refined. You begin to be much more aware of these issues these people are carrying around in the field they generate creates contraction in you. I've experienced that. So you have a choice. You either contract in resonance with those contractions mm. or because you've mastered relaxation and presence in your practice, you relax into the arising contraction in them and in you. And then the energy becomes liberated and free. But And then you begin to see, wow, this works. Right, because you allow people to be. Yeah. You allow yourself to be. Exactly. But the relaxation part is absolutely critical. Without that, it doesn't work. And uh, is that the same as non-judgment or related? Uh, non-judgment is a deep part of that. So then, if you, as soon as you begin to uh, lose it again, because it does take some skill to do this, and you're going to succeed some of the time, and you're going to fail some of the time. So then I say, okay, now you're going to go back into your camp going to go back into the cave, your sacred cave, hopefully right in the same area where you did your, your retreat. If not, we try to set that up wherever you are. And you once again reconnect with the core of where all that creativity came from. And you begin once again to remind yourself, remember with your member, mm. your, your nature, your mm. body. And you, then you're ready to go back out and re-encounter, once again, situations that don't, this time you don't contract. You don't create blockage. And this time you begin to see, my gosh, I can really go through these situations. And by remaining very open and relaxed and present, uh, I can flow right through that situation, be, actually be helpful to the situation. And actually, I can eventually get to the point where you receive a lot of energy because so much energy from uh, what normally created anger, fear, judgment, uh, grief, you sadness. You transmute it. It transmutes into free energy. That's so encouraging. So this is the tempering process. Most uh, teachers and retreatants don't spend much time with us. We put most of our emphasis on that's a it's a very encouraging view I think of of that spiritual awakening process that you're able to go back you're able to go I mean I say back but what I mean is you're able to go to return to the situation you were in as a different person and feel that situation in a totally different way right and that you don't have to necessarily go out into nature for long periods of time to have that that feeling of peace and no, joy, the, you can uh, you can bring that what those lessons back. The re the, the retreat is a a return a retreat mm-hmm. of the treat of connecting to your essence. 
And initially it may take a little while to really open that. But then, you, as you become more and more skillful, you can return in a moment, ultimately. Would you say that you have reached enlightenment? Who would say what? <laughs> I, I had to ask you the question because I don't think I've ever met anybody who feels closer to enlightenment than you. So <laughs> had to see if you felt yourself where, you know, how do you feel about the place that you are in now in your spiritual life? Uh, well, as far as enlightenment is concerned, I would have to answer uh, who is claiming what? <laughs> yeah, what is enlightenment? And <laughs> uh, but I have to say that from the standpoint of uh, life experience, it's a, a period of feeling quite... Uh, complete in many ways and uh, I seem to be in a period where I uh, somehow what I've been up to is becoming increasingly helpful to others and I'm glad that that I can be helpful absolutely I think it's impossible to cross your path and not be affected and that's a beautiful thing you know I think that you have this presence and peace about you that just shines to all that come in contact and that's a that's a huge gift and um yeah so i i think i'm gonna ask if you have any last words to share before my last question to you sure so the fifth stage oh my I'm so sorry. <laughs> we completely, well, I'm excited about the fifth stage. <laughs> Fourth one sounded so good already. The fifth is where you, it has become so embedded, the temperance and that part of the process, that you naturally are in a state of continuous flowing liberation of the blockages that arise from contact with the pain of the other person. In your personal pain body is naturally liberates as, as things arise and happen. And I suppose through being in that state, you're able to help liberate others. Oh, it's immensely pain as helpful well. to others. Just the way you described. I mean, the field effect when that's accomplished is profound. I can tell. <laughs> so then, so then, my question to you is. We've talked about your vision for the world in the last episode, but mm. what is your vision for Crestone? Oh, hmm. Well, I just recently had lunch with a mayor. Very nice lady. There's a mayor of Crestone? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Karina. <laughs> Karina Denforth, a nice woman. And uh, we were talking about We've got, I've got plans to do this little concert thing with some folks from the uh, from Florida that are are uh, quite competent in things like concert arrangement and virtual reality stuff. But anyway, I mentioned that to her, and we were talking about how Crestone could be part of that, even like many small communities could be part of that around the planet. And in, the, in talking about that, she, she said, you know, one of the things I realized about Crestone recently, and she came out of uh, Albuquerque and was 
very involved with a lot of uh, a lot of uh, city uh, planning projects and company planning things down there. Very active, very common. But she knew she needed to enter into a very different kind of life, so she came here. Uh, she said, you know, I found out that Crestone is one of the darkest places in the Americas. Darkest how? Uh, no light pollution. Oh. So if you want to see the stars... It's amazing here. You come here. Yeah, it's one of the best places in North America for that. It, I can vouch for that. It's, I mean, in one of the one so of the she's places I've been. part of a campaign to uh, celebrate the fact that it is, still has a natural dark sky, which allows the stars to shine. Isn't that cool? That is beautiful. And then the other thing she said, I the other thing I discovered was that on the maps of the quietest places in North America, we are one of the very quietest spots left in North America. So so we're a place where the stars can still shine and be and the darkness can make that possible. And we're in a place where there's very little external ambient noise from roads, planes, what have you. Very, very deeply quiet. And uh, then I'm working with a mutual friend of hers and mine to get uh, North Crestone Creek, which flows better part of a mile through my property. And that would make Crestone the place or the site where the first river or stream that has its own rights of, to be, just like human, would be. Amazing. And so uh, that would be a third of the first places where nature itself is celebrated for having its own right to exist. So The legal rights. Yeah. So we would emerge out of that thing I started talking about in the beginning of everything as a resource. Imagine looking at your family as a bunch of resources that you can take from and see how can I take on a sustainable way from my sister so I can Steal just one dollar out of her pocket every day. <laughs> <laughs> Ridiculous. That's no way to establish a relationship. So we we move from that to being part of a, um, uh, for instance, be part of a natural system, and going deeper into a loving relationship where you're being sustained, just like you would in a good family type of situation. And then uh, finally, where you reach the point where um, <clears throat> all the components of the system are being honored as having complete integrity of their own being. So that regression would be, for me, would represent a great completion of some of my life's work. So your vision for Crestone is that it continues to maintain its kind of integrity and well, connection to, be, to it, nature. It needs to be a shining light for the rest of... An inspiration. The rest right. of, certainly, North America. If not beyond. If not beyond. Well, I mean, you're a really big part of that, so I thank you for your for your work and for being yeah. willing to share your... Well, it's great to, your great to share a few stories. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, John. Sure.